If you will turn in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 17, as we continue our study through the Word. Now, you'll remember that Jesus was in Nazareth, and he was rejected there in Nazareth, and so he departs from there, and he heads down to Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, and there he was in the synagogue. And you'll remember that as he was teaching there, that suddenly this demonically possessed man now manifested and the demon begins to speak out. And you'll remember that Jesus immediately rebukes the demon and the demon convulses the man and throws him down and then comes out. And the congregation is just stunned. Stunned at the authority of Jesus to just simply be able to issue a command and the demonic realm is forced to obey. After the service is ended, everybody departs and they go to their houses for the Sabbath meal. And when Jesus goes to Peter's house as the guest for that Sabbath meal, he finds that Peter's mother-in-law is sick and the high fever and you'll remember that jesus then goes in and ministers to her and that fever is instantly broken and she is restored to the fullness of health and she jumps up and serves and and we talked about how when we are whole that that the glorious joy that we have of serving that Jesus set that path before us that we are to serve others, that we're to live for others. And, and so when Jesus sets us free of, of high fevers in our lives, of ailments and of brokenness, that we get to jump up and go about our Father's business. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so he invites us to to follow after him. And so we see this glorious example set for us by Peter's mother-in-law. And then afterwards, you'll remember that now that was a Sabbath, Sabbath evening. Uh, And so when the stars come out, the Sabbath is over. And man, the people who had been in that service, that synagogue service, and had witnessed that demonstration of Jesus's power and authority They could not wait uh, till that Sabbath ended so that they could bring all of the sick and all of the infirmed and and everybody who had anything wrong with them. They, They were brought to Jesus there in Capernaum. And Jesus just ministered to every single one of them. He healed and touched and blessed and prayed for and and took care of everybody. And afterwards, the next day, the whole town of Capernaum, they were like, where is Jesus? We just want to put a statue of him in the middle of the town and now just keep him right here. We want to just keep him right in our town. This is, we have Jesus, you know. But Jesus said, I have to go. I have to preach the gospel to the surrounding areas. This is the purpose that I, that I came. And so Jesus departs and he just begins preaching and teaching in all of the cities and towns and villages there in Galilee. Luke records next for us that, that after a, a period of time, Jesus makes his way back to Capernaum. And boy, the minute that Jesus walks back into the town, it's like, you know, the word goes out on the street, Jesus is back. And man, they left their soap operas, they left their jaw, they left everything they wanted to now, they wanted to come and hear Jesus, to hear the words that he had, because 
Jesus just cut through the noise of life right to the heart. And he just, pure, perfect truth that was like a balm on, uh, on aching and pained souls. And so they, they discover that he's down by the Sea of Galilee and they all come and pretty soon the, the crowd is so gathered, Jesus is pressed back up against the water. You'll remember he jumps into the boat. It was Peter's boat and pushes back and, and he just keeps on teaching. He just keeps on loving them. He keeps on helping them to understand that you don't earn God's love, that God already loves you. That you don't earn God's love. God already loves you. Do you know why? He made you. He made you. You're his poem. He's, you're, you're his workmanship. And, and, and he loves you because he created you. And so he invites you into relationship and that your relationship isn't with a set of rules and regulations. You see, all relationships need structure. They need boundaries. But You don't have a relationship with the rules. You have a relationship with the person. And that's what had happened. God gave them the law, that out of lawlessness there was now law, so that there was order and structure of relationship. But what had happened is is that they had taken those structure, they had taken those rules, and they began to have a relationship with the rules, and then hoping that God was going to be happy with them if they could keep a lot of the rules. God, are you happy with me? God's mad at me today because I'm not keeping as many of the rules as I did before, but you're, you're keeping less than me, <laughs> but I'm not keeping as many as him. And, and it all began to be about the rules instead about God and God's great love. And the people, they just... They were being set free. They were being touched. They were being healed. And, and so they came and they crowded to hear the words of Jesus. And afterwards, you remember that Jesus told Peter, push back out further into the deep and throw out your, your nets. And you remember Peter was like, oh, master, we fished all night. We're tired. We didn't catch anything. Nevertheless, at your command, And he pushes back, and we talked about that reluctance obedience, the reluctance to obedience to the Lord. That that whenever God is inviting us to participate, whenever he's giving us an instruction, whenever there is any type of directive or leading from the Lord, there is always going to be this opposition of the flesh. The flesh is never going to want to to do a spiritual activity. The flesh never wants to go to church. The flesh never wants you to pray. The flesh never wants you to read your Bible. And the flesh definitely never wants you to seek the Lord with all your heart. And so here we see this reluctance from Peter to obey the Lord. And he gives a partial obedience. He throws out one net. And you remember that the Lord just fills that to breaking. And he calls for his business partners. And they bring the second boat. And the both of them are are almost sinking. And they bring in this great catch. But what happens to Peter? Man, Peter is just undone. He's just undone. Depart from me, Lord. I, I'm a sinner. In the light of the glory of Christ, as it cracked through the illumination of this miracle that was spoken to Peter in Peter's language, in Peter's world, the illumination of his own unrighteousness. And he felt so unworthy in the presence of the Lord. 
And you remember that Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And, and he gives him a new identity and invites him to now follow. And so we have the, the following after of the disciples now as Jesus is going to continue to collect those men that will be the apostles and and so we, we saw that. And then immediately after, you'll remember the just brief description Luke gives us of a leper and how the leper comes to Jesus. And if you're willing, you can make me whole. I'm willing, be cleansed. And the leper was healed. And you remember that it was interesting that Jesus says to him, he says, go now and show yourself to the priests in Jerusalem and, and offer the sacrifice that is prescribed in the book of Moses, in the law. But then he adds this as a testimony to them. As a testimony to them. Why? What does that mean as a testimony to them? Well, you see, the miracles, there were, there were miracles that were divided up. The Jews had divided up miracles into classes. And one of the classes of miracles was messianic miracles. There were certain miracles that they felt only the Messiah would be able to do. And one of those miracles that was considered a messianic miracle was to heal a leper. If a leper was healed, that that was in the category of messianic miracle. There had never been the healing of a leper underneath the law in the entire time since the time of the law in the nation. And, and so when Jesus tells him to go and to show himself now to the priest as a testimony, what Jesus also knows is according to the Sanhedrin's law, if there was any messianic activity, there needed to be an official investigation that would be launched into this activity to discern whether or not it was a credible messianic activity or whether it was not to substantiate that. And so what they would do is they would enter into a first stage of their investigation. Now in the first stage of their investigation it was known as the observation stage and what they would do is they would send pharisees and religious leaders to investigate but they were only allowed to observe they would just undergo this period of watching and then they would come back and they would write a report and address bring the report to the sanhedrin and if the sanhedrin if it was a substantial claim then they would go ahead and move to phase two. If it wasn't substantial, the case was closed, they would drop it and they would move on. The healing of a leper, that was going to absolutely now start an investigation. And so they issued forth the, the directive now for the scribes and the Pharisees to go and watch Jesus now and to come back and to give a report. Now, remember that in the first phase, they're not allowed to ask questions. In the observation phase of the, of the investigation, no questions are allowed to be asked. You're not allowed to interfere what's going on. You're just to sit there, watch, and then come back and report. And so what we're going to find here is that Jesus now is going to heal a paralytic. But what Luke is going to tell us is that suddenly there were all of these scribes and Pharisees that showed up there in Galilee. Now remember that they're from Jerusalem and from Judea. That's the city. 
And remember that Galilee is like the farmland. It's farm country. And suddenly you have all of these city folk showing up in their fine dress. The Pharisees and the scribes have all of their robes. And they're like walking around in cow pastures, you know, out following Jesus as he is out in the hill country and uh, in the surrounding region. And so it's very obvious now that, that they are investigating Jesus. And, and so we're going to see how Jesus handles this as he conducts, continues to conduct his ministry, and he's continuing to, to teach now the people and to heal the needs everywhere that he goes. And so in verse 17 here of this fifth chapter, it tells us, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And so we see the power of God is here to more than instruct us. It is here to touch our lives, to change us, and to heal us. That same healing power and presence of the Lord is with us today, not just to illuminate the Scriptures and to press truth into our heart, which it does, but also to change us, to heal us, to make us whole. The Lord sees the brokenness that's in our lives, the brokenness that is in every single one of us, because every single one of us has been ravaged by sin in our life our own sin that has ravaged us and also the sin of others that has perpetrated now and inflicted damage upon us. And, and it is the power of the Holy Spirit that will heal now those wounds that we have received. And so the healing power of the Lord is with us even here today. And it says in verse 18, And then behold, a man brought on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. There were friends of this man who was paralyzed. And these friends believed that they heard about Jesus. Maybe they were there in the synagogue and watched the demon cast out and all of the reports that were going out. But this is what they believed. They believed, just like the woman that believed that if she could just touch the hem of the garment of Jesus, that she could be made whole. They believed if we can just get our friend into the presence of Jesus, Jesus can heal him. Jesus can heal him. And so they go over to his house and say, road trip, let's go. We are taking you to Jesus. But how do you get a paralyzed man laying on a bed to, to Jesus? Well, they thought about it and they said, we'll take the bed. <laughs> and so they pick up the whole bed with the man in the bed and they are walking down the street now bringing him to Jesus. I just want you to stop and think for a minute. How hard is that to carry a person on a bed? And yet they were determined. All they knew is one thing. We just need to get them to Jesus. We can just get them to Jesus. Everything is going to be okay. So they come marching down the street carrying their paralyzed friend. And, and in verse 19 it says, And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd. So they get to the house where Jesus is. But, slight problem. Everybody is there. This place is packed. 
the, the crowds are surrounding this house, and these crowds are thicker than the Golden Knight fans surrounding T-Mobile Arena. I, I mean, they are just packed uh, around there, and they are trying to get their friend in now on a bed. And so we see here that, that they look and they survey the situation. How can we get Jesus into the presence? Well, Maybe what we can do is this. Maybe we'll just get him somewhere around the door, and when he comes out, uh, then he can walk by him, and then we can have him in his presence. And, the, and they maybe thought about that, but then they're like, what if he goes out the back door? <sighs> you know, so that's not a guarantee that we're going to get him in, in the presence. How can we guarantee, how can we guarantee that we can get him in the presence of Jesus? And, and one of them said, hey, I have an idea. See, the roof up top, those were like patios. The roofs were flat, and there was always outdoor staircases up to the flat roof. And, and, and that's where in the evening time they'd go up and sit and recline and relax and, and fellowship up on the flat roofs. And, and so he looks at the flat roof up there, and, and he says, what about this? What if we carry our friend up the stairs and onto the roof, open up the tiles, and lower him into the presence of Jesus? And his friends went, good idea that, you know, and so now suddenly they are going to bring him up the stairs. I just want you to think about this for a minute. How hard is it to carry a person on a bed upstairs without tilting it so he slides right off and onto the ground? And yet these guys are motivated they are motivated to get jesus to get their friend into the presence of jesus and so they get him up the stairs and they get him onto the roof and then thud they set him down on the rooftop and here's jesus he's down below he's inside and there is all of this commotion that's going on on the roof. And here he is inside, and he is just teaching, and he is ministering. And who's sitting around him? All the Pharisees are sitting there listening, and they are writing notes, and they are investigating. And Jesus is just, he's just continuing to, to minister. And then all of a sudden, up on the roof, you hear this... <laughs> and off comes a tile now off of the roof where Jesus is teaching and there's suddenly this light that illuminates and of course everybody looks up and there's somebody looking in going hey hey Jesus we got the right room you know I mean this is because we're not sure if that was the kitchen or is that the bedroom is this even the place where Jesus is we got the right spot okay so now listen to what that idea was the idea was to take enough of these tiles off that we can lower an entire bed uh, down. How big a hole in a roof do you need to open up to lower a paralyzed man laying on a bed into the presence of Jesus? So here's Jesus. He's just teaching and there's this is now they're pulling the tiles off. The hole is getting better, bigger. The light is streaming into the, the living area. Uh, the dust is all coming down. Now Jesus is just teaching. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the light that's in there just suddenly is shut off. And you look up, and there's a bed now that's over the hole, and, and it suddenly is lowered down. Now, I want you again, just think, how hard would it be 
as an exercise to lower somebody down, four of you with ropes here so that this thing doesn't tilt all down. And suddenly Jesus just teaching in this bed now just starts slowly lowering down into the room and bang. And they're up top and they went, yes, success. We caught him into the living room. And now Jesus is sitting there in the living room with this new skylight uh, that is uh, still uh, above. And you have the religious leaders that are watching all of this intently. And it says now that because of the crowd in verse 19, that they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And in verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. When he saw their faith, you see, our works are the evidence of our faith. And it's the evidence now. How much faith did they have? Well, the evidence was what they were willing to do in order to get this man into the presence of Jesus. You only go through that type of work if you firmly believe, if it is fixed in your heart, that Jesus can heal him. And so it was evidenced by their works. And Jesus sees their faith. And it made me to think, man, their faith was observable. How's our faith? Do we have an observable faith in our lives? Can other people see the absolute dependence and trust that we have on the Lord in all circumstances in our lives? Can they observe our faith by the way that we're conducting ourselves and the way that we are loving others? And, and so here they have observable faith. And Jesus then says to him, man, your sins are forgiven. He bypasses the obvious, which is the the physical infirmity, the paralysis that is there. And he goes to a much deeper need that the man has, and that's the spiritual issue that is in his life. You see, our spiritual life is way more important than our physical life. Our Our physical life, it's a vapor. This body is just a tent. But your soul, that's eternal. And if your soul is sick, that is of greater importance than any sickness that your body can possibly have. And and sin is the sickness of every man's soul. And so Jesus now says to him, Man, your sins, they are forgiven. They are washed away. They are wiped away. And can you imagine what that effect would have been on the religious leaders that were sitting there sent to investigate Jesus when Jesus says that right in front of them? Their eyes got big as saucers and they, they immediately now began to take note. What? Who does he think he is? Who is this guy that now is telling other people that that he has the authority to forgive sins and and we see that uh, that the scribes verse 21 and, and the Pharisees began to reason saying who is this who speaks blasphemies who can forgive sins but God alone you see their theology is right only God can forgive sin but their conclusion was wrong see He's either God and can forgive, or he's not, and he's blaspheming. 
And so here they are reasoning. But I want you to know, remember that they're not allowed to ask questions. These are just in their heart. This is just what they are thinking. But God sees our thoughts. Amen. He sees every single one of your thoughts. He sees every single one of my thoughts. We are naked before the creator God of the universe. Though we try and hide just like Adam and Eve when they sinned, they, their very first parents, they, they tried to hide their sin. And, and so also do we try and hide as well. But every single thought is open before God. And so we see that verse 22, but when Jesus perceived their what? their thoughts. See, it weren't their words, their thoughts. He answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your what? In your hearts. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk. So Jesus now poses a question to these religious leaders. He, he says, is it easier for a person to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say you're healed and to perform a miracle? Now, it is difficult to substantiate just outwardly if a person says your sins are forgiven, whether anything happened or didn't happen. But if you say you are healed, uh, it is easy to determine whether or not something happened or didn't happen. So he says, which one of those is, is easier to say? And of course, it's easier to say that which is not provable, which is your sins are forgiven. But Jesus is going to do the harder now to show that he can accomplish the easier here. That they might know the reality that he has the authority and the power to be able to forgive sins. And so uh, he says in verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He's going to make two declarations here. Number one, I am the Son of Man. I am the Messiah. And secondly, the Messiah has the power and authority to forgive sins. And so there is illumination on two levels, on who the Messiah's identity is and who the Messiah is in scope and nature. And so here he says now in verse 24, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately, it says, he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear saying, we have seen strange things today. <laughs> we thought it was amazing what happened in the synagogue uh, last time, but this one, this trumps everything that we have seen. I, I mean, this guy now who has been paralyzed suddenly, he is recovered over his paralysis. I want you to just think through the number of miracles that we've got here. Number one, a paralysis is a neurological disorder. It's a dysfunction of the neural system. And so instantly Jesus healed the neural system. But uh, remember that when you don't use your muscles, there's a, a, an atrophying of the muscles that takes place. And so, so he is in this weakened, uh, paralyzed condition. And then on top of that, even once the muscles are strengthened, then you need the coordination that's necessary, your balance and all, to be able to fully recover. And what happens? He is instantly healed. Not just that he can stand up and walk, but so healed that Jesus even tells him, hey, and pick up your burden and depart in front of everybody. And off he goes uh, now out and carrying his bed. And here's the religious leaders. 
And here's the crowd. We are seeing strange things uh, here. This is unbelievable what Jesus is doing. Most assuredly here, that investigation, if they came up to discern whether this is a substantial or an insubstantial claim to his Messiahship, we're going to put substantial (laughs) and so they immediately went back to the Sanhedrin and said hey this is no joke this is no joke I mean this guy has power he we watched him heal a cripple right in front of us he stood up and what and we verified that and not only that guys listen he's claiming authority of God he said that people's sins were forgiven and so instantly this investigation would have moved from stage one into a stage two investigation and so now they were resent out again this time not to just watch at this point now it is full-time interrogation from this point forwards in jesus's ministry you will see pharisees and religious leaders everywhere that jesus turns i mean he'll be walking out in fields and there they are walking behind him you know in the fields you remember the disciples plucked the grain on the sabbath as they're just journeying through and there are the Pharisees behind them now following them wherever they go but now they're not just observing now they're challenging and we're going to see from this point forward that they are going to question and ask Jesus and his disciples and the people as they now continue into their messianic investigation that's been launched by the Sanhedrin in the meantime Jesus now walking through Capernaum here in verse 27. It says, and after these things, after some time later. So the time frame would have been for those leaders to get to Jerusalem, to make their report, to have an edict issued. And now there are new religious leaders that have come back to observe or possibly the same ones, but with a different set of standards. And so after these things, Verse 27, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And so he left all, rose up, and followed him. Here we, we've got the, the, the shortest evangelistic message recorded in the gospel. Two words, follow me. Whoop, and there he goes. He's up uh, out of his seat and follows uh, after Jesus. And now, uh, And we see that he leaves what? He left all. He left all to follow after Jesus. And and so now we see that after he departs from the world and from his life, he wants to throw a feast for Jesus to honor him and to thank him. And so verse 29, then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And so here we have now the phase two of the investigation. They're questioning now. We want to know, why is Jesus not conducting himself like a holy man? He says that he's a holy man. But you see, holy men, they don't interact with the sinners. 
You see, to a holy man, you keep yourself separated from the unrighteous. They, they believed themselves uh, to be clean, and so the clean didn't touch the unclean. If the clean comes in contact with the unclean, then that makes what was clean unclean. And so the Pharisees, when they were in the marketplaces, they would take their robes and wrap themselves up tightly on them so they're not swishing around. And then they would try and walk through the market so that they don't touch anybody because if they touch somebody that might be unclean, then they would be unclean. And here's the effort that they are making to keep themselves separated from the unclean. And what did Jesus do? He walked right into a feast filled with sinners, with tax collectors, and with all of the people where every single one of them is unclean. And no doubt he's touching with them, he's eating with them, he's fellowshipping with them. So can you explain to me why this man who's claiming to be a holy man and can forgive sin is not acting like a holy man like us? And Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are sick, those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He, he uses a proverb of their day that those that are well have no need of a physician. And, but instead he now uses it as an analogy. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners are the ones that need to be called to repentance. If I just stayed around the righteous, then who would call the unrighteous to repentance? And so he just uses simple logic with them but notice what he doesn't bother to even go into and you think that you're righteous but you're actually not even righteous because there's none righteous no not one not one pharisee is righteous here but all he is doing is just explaining to them the need for the unrighteous to have the truth preached to them and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of god and who is it that will go and to share the good news with those who are in desperate need of it. And so Jesus here declares that he will bring that message to those who are in need. And so they, they don't relent. That's not the end of it. They just, this is the beginning of their questions in verse 31. Then they said to him, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So John the Baptist, now here we see the tactic, divide and conquer. And so he is going to try and drive a wedge in between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus. He says, hey, I've noticed something here, that, that the disciples of John, they fast. And guess what? Us Pharisees, we fast, but your disciples, they don't fast. Can you explain why? <laughs> one of these things is not like the other ones, and it's you. <laughs> Can you explain? And so Jesus, now we see that he answers here in verse 34. And he said to them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. You see, the, 
bridegroom is Jesus and the church were the bride and the bride and the bridegroom were together there. Jesus was with them. And during that time when the bridegroom and the bride are together, that was the reception. That was the wedding feast. And, and back in those days when a bride and a groom married, what a joyous celebration it was. And they didn't go away on a honeymoon that, like our custom today. Instead, they took that money and they threw a giant feast. And the feast lasted a week, a week-long feast. It would be held at the father of the groom's house. And throughout that week, all your friends and neighbors and well-wishers would come and just celebrate with you at the feast. The bride and the groom, they got to wear crowns. They were called the king and queen of the feast feast and it was a time of just great joy that was not a time that you fasted that was the greatest week of your entire life of uh, of celebration and the groom was with the bride there's not going to be any fasting there but there is going to be a time when the groom is going to be separated from his bride here we already see pointing to the cross and jesus is ascension into heaven is foreshadowed even here he says there will be a time when the groom will be separated and then it will be appropriate fasting is is a wonderful spiritual discipline i think that it's fallen out of vogue with the church it's not in vogue today but there is such vitality and function to fasting we see that jesus fasted and and so we also need to learn that in our lives and and incorporate it. But Harry says that there will be a time when the fasting of his disciples will take place, but, but it's not now. And so we see that Jesus is going to now teach about the new covenant that he's come to establish and, and its relationship with the old covenant. As the, as the old covenant is trying to make sense of the Messiah, whose mission is to set up the new covenant and fulfill the old covenant, they're going to try and, and see how this new covenant is going to interact with the old covenant. Is it going to be patched together with the old covenant now and, and be merged? Or is it going to be poured into the the rigidness of the old covenant and and jesus is going to use two different parables to explain that that there isn't going to be a merging of the old and the new covenant that these are going to be completely separate from one another he's going to use the the parable of the cloth and and the parable also of the wine skins and and so he says now in verse 36 then he spoke a parable to them no one puts a piece uh, from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also, the piece that was taken out of the new one does not match the old. So when you have a, a garment that has been shrunk, washed multiple times and is shrunk down, now it's pre-shrunk. And you have a tear in it, a worn out place. When you patch that, you wouldn't take a piece of new cloth and put it on and stitch it in tightly. Because when you then wash that, that patch is going to contract and shrink and it will tear out the, the hole that now it has been stitched into. And so you are not going to patch the new covenant into the, the old covenant, he says, and uses the, the physical illustration. They have no idea that Jesus is talking about 
the old covenant and the new covenant. But here we see that we have perfect clarity with what Jesus was talking and explaining and teaching even to them. He goes on in verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. And so, again, a new wineskin had great flexibility to it. And new wine is still continuing to ferment. The gases are still produced, being produced, and it creates a pressure inside as those gases and fermentation continues. Now, if you have a flexible wineskin, it's able to flex with that pressure and then to relax. But if you put it into an older wineskin... An older wineskin becomes weathered and it loses its elasticity. And so when the gas and the pressure of the new wine now expands in there against a rigid structure, it will burst the rigid structure and you will lose not only the wineskin is now ruined, but also you're going to lose the wine that's in it as well. So the old structure is Judaism and the new wine now is the new covenant that's being established. And so the new covenant is not going to be poured into the rigidity of the law and of the old covenant, but it is going to be its own separate covenant. And so Jesus uses this illustration here, this parable to instruct them. And then in the final verse, he talks to them about the fact that the people that are comfortable in the old covenant They're going to resist now the change that is going to take place just simply because they're used to what they're used to. And so here it says now in verse 39, And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. You know, we can get used to doing something and know how to do it old school. And then there's a new technique. There's a new invention. There's a new gadget that does just that very same thing. And you can find yourself saying, you know what? I'm good. I know how to do it this way. I'm comfortable doing it this way. I've been doing it this way for a long time. (laughs) And I don't need a new and different way. And you see, while that's fine when it's, you know, you're talking about cooking and you're talking about, you know, skills around the house, it is not a good approach when you're talking about truth. You always need to, we always need to gravitate towards truth wherever truth is found and not say, you know what, I've gotten comfortable the way that I'm living. They were comfortable in the law. The women, they knew how to keep Sabbath. They knew how to keep kosher. They knew how to, to order their lives and, and how it worked. And so it was, it was good. We're okay. We got this managed. We got this down. And so there is always that reticence to depart from that which is comfortable and familiar to embrace that which is new, even if it's true. And so Jesus here now talks about the reluctance that that is going to be faced by the new covenant. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention for just a minute to verse 27, where Jesus simply says to Matthew, follow me. Follow me. And... And as Jesus just reaches out to Matthew, who was a tax collector, we see that that it says that he immediately left all. He rose up, he left all, and he immediately follows after Jesus. 
Matthew, to me, represents that person that has experienced the lies of the world. You see, the world lies. The, the world promises fulfillment, promises prosperity, promises that, uh, that the lifestyle that is put before us is this glamorous, wonderful, exciting lifestyle and that you can have it all. Gratify your flesh. Fulfill your flesh. When you are having great experiences and, and you have wonderful possessions and, and you have everything that this world has to offer, man, that is uh, living. And there are many a person that goes chasing after that exact dream that is set before. The happily ever after that everybody is searching, the world is happy to define exactly what that happily ever after is. And normally that involves a lot of money. And so at some point in time, Matthew had an opportunity to become a tax collector. And Matthew weighed that decision. Matthew, you are going to make a lot of money. You are going to be able to take vacations. You're going to be able to to do anything that you want. You're going to have the house of your dreams. You're going to have a house that has a three-donkey garage in it. (laughs) And Matthew went... I'm in. Sign me up. And he takes the job. But what he never realized uh, was that he would be hated by everybody around him and that he would lose the respect uh, of everybody that was important to him. That he would have the money and he would have the house, but when his neighbors were having the parties, he wouldn't be invited. And when they were going to their social engagements, uh, his doorbell wouldn't ring. And he would have a lot of money. But he would not ever have the joy and the life that he thought that money was going to bring him. And now he sat in a tax booth collecting more money every single day, trapped by the very thing that he thought was going to bring fulfillment. And suddenly Jesus walks by and he says, follow me. I'll give you a new life. And you know what? Matthew didn't need to be asked (laughs) twice. He was like, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. And he was out in a New York second. In a New York second which I think is faster than a West Coast second or a Midwest second, but I'm not sure I'll have to get back to you on that. Why? Because he had dived into the world and experienced the emptiness of the world. And when Jesus now invited him into a new life, he was willing to leave what part of it? All of it. You see, when, when you come into the kingdom to follow after the Lord, what part of the world does he want you to leave behind? All. What part of your life does he want you to leave behind? Uh, all of it. Because it's the world's definitions that we have been functioning in. And it's the world's operation. And it's the world's currency. You see, the currency of the world is money, but the currency of the kingdom is love. And so what good is the wrong currency? 
If you're in a foreign country and you've got the wrong currency, you can't buy anything. You have to get it changed to the new currency. And so Jesus says, come. And do you know what he's saying that to each and every one of us? Come. Leave the old life. Leave the life that was being defined for you by the world. Just leave it where it is. And come and build your new life on the foundation of truth, empowered by the Spirit, wrapped in love. And that is the invitation that he gives to every single person. And today we have the battle between those who are chasing after the gratification of the flesh as defined by the world and those that are chasing after the Lord and following after him. May the Lord minister to each and every one of us. May we leave all. And may the Lord reveal what things are we still chasing? What lies from the world are we still believing? What discontent is there in our heart as we are in the kingdom? And and may today be a day when, like Matthew, every last bit of the world that we once had in us, we depart from and we just simply follow Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us and for the word, the truth that you reveal. And help us, God, to be set free. I pray for every single one of us that can identify with that paralytic. All of us have been paralyzed in our life by fear, by anxiety, by insecurity, by, by all of the wounds that, that we have experienced, either self-inflicted through our own sins or, or through the sin of others that have hurt us and harmed us. But Lord, may we hear that healing cry from you arise, stand up and Pick up that bed of infirmity and move past it now. You are healed. Lord, may we be healed to go love and to go minister and to follow after you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. 